This is Toledo Symphony Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of classical music from WGTE Public Media and your Toledo Symphony. I'm Brad Cresswell. Joining me today are the Toledo Symphony's president and CEO, Zach Vassar, our music director, Alain Trudel, principal second violin and artistic administrator, Merwin Sue, and a special return guest, that is Effie Papanicolaou, who is a musicologist on faculty at Bowling Green State University and an occasional panelist here on Toledo Symphony Lab. Welcome back, Effie. Thank you, Brad. This is your third appearance, I believe. It is my third. Yeah, we, we talked about uh, the Schumanns and Johannes Brahms, and we also talked about Mahler and his Resurrection Symphony, which... Almost closed out, pretty much was the the last big concert of the TSO's 75th uh, anniversary season. So we had Mahler's Resurrection, and now we're on to Mahler's Fifth, which begins with a funeral march. Kind of interesting that you had the Resurrection and then the funeral. But uh, (laughs) we're going to talk about Mahler and the program. It is uh, that time of year when the season opener is upon us. Uh, That's happening this weekend. It's happening September 27th and 28th, Friday and Saturday, 8 o'clock p.m. at the Toledo Museum of Art Peristyle. Alain Trudel conducting the concert. We're going to hear music of Alain Trudel. Also, Korngold's Violin Concerto and Mahler's Symphony No. 5. So we have a big Mahler discussion on tap. However, I want to start with you, Alain. We're going to hear a piece that you wrote for orchestra. Many folks know you as a uh, conductor and also as a trombone soloist, but uh, you are also a composer. You've written a number of works, both uh, chamber works and orchestral works. And we're going to begin the concert this weekend with one of your orchestral works. It's called Rhea, inspired Mm -hmm. by uh, the mother of Zeus, right? The Greek yes. goddess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you you know you seem to take on these heady subjects. Uh, I have another sample of your music here uh, called Big Bang. Oh. I assume has you know uh, space cosmological uh, associations. Uh, we can listen to a little bit of it here. Let me play just a little bit so we get an idea of uh, what your music sounds like. That's music of Alain Trudel from a piece called Big Bang. Alain Trudel, conductor of the Toledo Symphony, uh, is conducting his own music for the season opener happening this weekend. A piece called Rhea. This is the American premiere. Yes, it will be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give us a little uh, background uh, on this piece. Well, what I thought was interesting. Well, first of all, it's, it was a. Um, it's. You know, it's nothing to compare with uh, the rest of the program. Of course, the other works are works of genius. But uh, I thought it'd be nice to start with uh, something very positive, a lot of energy. And this was commissioned by the other TSO, the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was, um, uh, you know that the rea is also called Sibel, like the decibel, Sibel. Uh, oh, okay. And uh, I wanted to have a theme that had something, first of all, talked about the very important woman. Mm-hmm. And that uh, also had a musical already kind of background to the 
the not the story but the person so the, it, it is said that whenever Rhea would come and would walk in somewhere there would always be fanfares and drums and you know so, so I thought what yeah. a great way to start the year so I, I have the same experience <laughs> <laughs> with your walking music yeah uh, anyway so uh I also thought of doing uh, specialized music, so there, there's some brass that are in the hall, so people will hear, uh -huh. uh, it's like a kind of a THX, uh, kind of, uh, yeah. at the movies, the song comes from everywhere, so there's a fanfare that comes from there, there's of course a big part for the percussion and the trumpets, but it's a f for full orchestra, it's very short, it's an orchestra fanfare, maybe it's six minutes. Um, it's built around this this one note that expands to a full fanfare after that. Mm. Uh, well, here's the way you should do it. You should have the orchestra start it on their own, and then you walk in as the <laughs> trumpets and drums <laughs> are playing. Right, you get the season off to a off to a rousing start. Well, that's exciting. In some ways, it speaks to sort of the the you know the person that all roads lead to in this concert, and that's not necessarily Gustav Mahler, but Alma Mahler, because. You've also got the Corn Gold Violin Concerto on this program, which was dedicated to Alma Mahler. Mm -hmm. Corn Gold was, you know, mentored by Gustav when he was young. Um, and you have a violin soloist that is uh, Liza Ferchman. Is it Liza or, or Lisa? Liza Ferchman. Yeah. She's a Dutch violinist, yes. right? Now, tell us a little bit about her. Well, it was one of the things that sometimes when you're looking to perform a piece, you just listen to a whole bunch of recordings. Mm. And... I think sometimes people think that's how we choose all of our soloists. <laughs> we just kind of listen to recordings and find the one that we like the best. But in this case, that's exactly what happened. Um, she's a woman who's got an amazing career in Europe and has performed with the Concertgebouw Orchestra, the Berlin Symphony, Vienna, but has not performed as much in North America. So we're really excited to you know, bring her to American audiences. It's not her American debut by any stretch, but yeah. she has more of a European career. And I think what we really liked about her um, Korngold Concerto is it's very spacious, expansive, but powerful. Mm -hmm. There's real um, muscularity in, um, behind this. And uh, it's funny because Korngold talked about um, the concerto kind of combining aspects of Caruso and Paganini, like this, you need this kind of heroic tenor quality to wow. it. And she really brings that, and so we're really excited to yeah. feature her. Well, it's also just a great setup for what's to come, because, you know, I, I was joking about ending with the uh, resurrection and beginning with the funeral uh, <laughs> this season, but the, the Mahler Symphony Number no. 5 kind of stands a alone in some ways from his other symphonies. And as far as in-house, live and concert experiences go, this is really like, you know, the Mount Everest of <laughs> symphonies to experience in person. There's so much in the way of um, just thrilling moments in this symphony. Zach, you look like you're poised to say something. I'm pretty sure you described the resurrection the same way on yeah. the podcast <laughs> we did for that. So I think what you're trying to say is whenever we perform Mahler, it should be experienced live, and I would not disagree with you on that. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're done with the resurrection. We're on to the funeral now. <laughs> so with that in mind, we're going to talk about uh, Gustav Mahler, Symphony Number no. 5. We're also going to talk about Alma Mahler because there are about five or six romance novels there, I think, uh, in her life that we want to talk about and her influence on many composers, including uh, uh, Korngold and that violin concerto. But uh, Effie, you've been sitting there quietly. I'm going to bring you in now. We have a segment now which is designed just for you. It's called Ask the Expert. Let me pull up your... Uh 
theme music here. This is my expert theme music. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Hang on. It's just an introduction, that's all. I won't play it while you're talking. So, <laughs> Mahler appreciates it. Yes. Which, which Mahler? <laughs> Alma. Okay. Always. Now, my question to you is, we're playing Symphony Number no. 5, right? We're talking Symphony Number no. 5, Gustav Mahler. Put it in context for us. Give us a little history on the symphony. So the year is 1901 in Vienna, and Gustav Mahler has already been with the Vienna Court Opera and the Philharmonic for about four years. He got the job in 1897. Uh, He has already written four symphonies, which have yet to be performed in Vienna, because (coughs) the Viennese audience could not stomach his um, music. And talking about stomach, in March of 1901, <laughs> he nearly died of an intestinal that's hemorrhage. That's a fantastic segue, I have to say. <laughs> I didn't even plan it. It just came naturally <laughs> right now. So he's in very bad uh, physical shape. He had a surgery. It almost killed him. Uh, and he decided that he couldn't really stomach anymore working for the Vienna Philharmonic because more than the opera, he really hated working with the orchestra. So when he came back from the hospital, he gave his resignation and he was Mm. free of those duties. And then it was summer and usually in the summers he would spend his time in his villa in a little chalet on the lake and he would dedicate his entire summer just to composition because he was so busy throughout the year conducting he didn't have any time to write any music yeah so summer of 1901 he goes to his chalet he has quiet time his sister is there one of his dear friends is there other people visit but he always has his little hut his little place where he uh, composes quietly and according to the sources that's when he started writing the third movement he started the fifth symphony uh, mm. with mm. a scherzo mm. and after that he came he went back to Vienna a new season at the opera was starting and he started probably from what we understand he, he, he continued to compose the fifth symphony although that was very unusual for him to have all these duties and continue to compose yeah And then the Big Bang happened. (laughs) Sorry, Alain. (laughs) But for him, the Big Bang was November of 1901. This is when he met Alma, right? That's when he met Alma at a friend's dinner. And he met Alma. And initially, he didn't think too much of her. But then they got into an argument, uh, which was (laughs) typical of Alma. You know, here she is, 22 years old and... Uh, he is, she's hobnobbing with all the the elite of Vienna, and of course she was part of the elite. And here she is in front of one of the greatest personalities in Vienna, Gustav Mahler, the director of the Vienna Opera. And she gets into an argument why Zemlinsky's music mm-hmm. was not played by the Philharmonic the uh, previous year. We should year. mention she had a special relationship with uh, Zemlinsky at the time. A very special, yeah. Brad. And Mahler got very upset. He he said, oh, you know, I I don't think it's really great music. She got even more upset. And (laughs) that led to a second meeting. And at the second meeting, he was convinced that she was the woman for him. I I mean, it's no wonder that the story of Gustav and Alma has inspired, you know, movies and Mm. books and all different kinds of uh, treatments of that relationship. 
Now, I asked everybody to send me like their favorite moments of, of the symphony, and Effie, you chose an excerpt from the Adagetto. I'd like to listen to that. Do you want to set it up for us? Yes, it's a moment in this gorgeous movement, which, of course, we will discuss again, I'm sure, um, where the violins play this quotation from Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. I mean, it's kind of a subtle reference in some ways. It's a subtle reference, but everybody who wanted to reference love, reference Tristan, and someone like Alma, who was very well educated in music, would have gotten the message. Yeah. What was the message? Because we all know how that story ended. (laughs) Uh, um, Before the end, though. (laughs) because <laughs> this is still early days it's still still we're still yeah. early so it's the Apparently, idea of love that can't be destroyed by mortal means well or love that is so passionate hmm. it almost feels and it may be unrequited yeah um and apparently he wrote this adagetto after he met her although we're not exactly sure about that yeah well, everybody says it's his love letter to mm. Alma Mahler. I mean, now, I'm a little unclear on, on all of this on the chronology. I mean, when did they get together? And they got together immediately. In December right. of 1901, okay. they got engaged secretly, and then they were out in the open. And then within three months, they got married, and she was actually pregnant with their first child when yeah. they got married. Well, eventually the marriage soured, as we know. But where does the Symphony Number no. 5 fit into uh, Gustav's relationship with Alma? So the following year in 1902, now newly married and with Alma pregnant, they're back at his chalet, at his villa, and he continues to compose, and he finished the symphony. Mm. And the next year, in 1903, when it went through various revisions again and again, because we talked about that before, how Mahler continued to revise his music, then in October of 1903, he sent it out for publication, and there was... A dedication on the first page, which you can see on the manuscript, to my dear Almshi, the faithful and brave companion on all my journeys. Wow, nice. But the word faithful, I think, was <laughs> maybe <laughs> optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> that was another subtle message he was sending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think we just need to point out for those who don't know that. Uh, Alma was herself a wonderful composer, and during their courtship and marriage, Mahler made it very clear that he wanted his wife to be wife, mother, housekeeper, not composer. Well, until he sensed that she was, you know, moving away from him. Right. Then, Then he changed his tune. Right. You know. So, in moving away from him, she starts having affairs with some rather elite figures. Yeah. And that's where the great heartbreak comes. 
And, and and Mahler, as we know, then at that time became an advocate for her music, helped to get some of her songs published and supported her in that way, but eventually to no avail. I want to move on to somebody else's uh, favorite here. And, and Zach, since you uh, were at the microphone just now, maybe you want to tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about the uh, selection that you chose. Yeah, so this is, I think, from the uh, maybe the first third of the first movement. Um, and and I'll say that the first movement really confounds me because there's so much going on. Um, I think it's a there there's a, uh, a huge amount of themes and a lot of exhilarating passages uh, to come through, but there are also some amazing climaxes. I mean, he really uses all of his color and uh, capability in, in in creating drama in the first movement, and and the drama I think. Uh, is finally resolved in that beautiful adagietto that we just spoke of. Um, but for me, the first two movements are, are really uh, anxious or even um, filled with agony. And this uh, this quote I have here, um, I find very interesting from a historical perspective, because if you go back just a couple years, we're living very much in the world of Brahms and Tchaikovsky. I mean, Brahms at this point has only been dead for four years when he's mm-hmm. writing uh, the fifth, when Mahler's writing his fifth. Uh, Tchaikovsky's last symphony was uh, just a couple years old at this point, less than 10 years old. So um, if we think about what drama meant for Brahms or for Tchaikovsky, and then we hear this really crazy dramatic uh, moment from the first movement you start to realize where Mahler has already taken music so when you think about this symphony um, really laying the path for what the 20th century music will become this little passage of 15 seconds is for me I think very revealing And one of the reasons it always sticks out for me is that he's doing so many different things. The, the, the trumpets are hitting one set of rhythms. A timpani are punctuating all sorts of different rhythms. Yeah. Um, and the, Elaine is doing air French horn over there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, it's just incredible to hear the amount of depth in this orchestral moment in that you have the winds are flying. They're a little hard to hear. You have to listen very carefully to hear what the heck the winds are doing because there's so much other stuff going on but it's this crazy crazy canvas and I feel like this is the dawn of the 20th century right here oh there's that trumpet again that trumpet that sort of that opens the whole symphony interesting I, I like how you described, Zach, that moment. And I have a quotation here, if I may read it. Uh, this is a letter that um, Gustav sent to Alma in 1904 after the premiere of the symphony. Uh, Alma couldn't attend for some reason. So he wrote from <laughs> Cologne, where the premiere was, and he said this. Heavens, what is the public to make of this chaos in which new worlds are forever being engendered, only to crumble into ruin the next moment? 
Mm. What are they to say to this primeval, primeval music, this foaming, roaring, raging mm. sea of sound, to these dancing stars, to these breathtaking, iridescent and flashing breakers? Yeah. He was very shy about describing his music. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was foaming, but, raging. I and mean, there's a great adjectives there. Primeval yeah. is a good roaring, one. raging oh, sea yeah. of sound. That's exactly he what He knew that exactly is. that yeah. it was so beyond anything that anybody had ever heard. Yeah. yeah. Merwin, you chose uh, another excerpt from I the Advocato. I think I chose almost, almost the same. Well, n- I was actually thinking that maybe this. Do you have the Scherzo excerpt or no? Um, no. No, I don't think okay. I have the scherzo. It's unfortunate because the scherzo excerpt is actually the perfect complement to this. Yeah. Um, because it's it's very funny that I think um, uh, we were talking about this a little bit off air. I think um, when you're kind of getting, when you're l- pl- performing the symphony, it's an entirely different experience. Like I think it, I think maybe more so than any of his other symphonies, there's a real internal logic to it so it may seem so ra- you know like raging and private i chose an excerpt from the scherzo which to me it's just Mahler's chamber music incredibly simple and to me it's to me this is what i think of when i think of this this symphony is just how how like gorgeous chamber music it is it's mm-hmm. it's just such yeah. a you know but i think to to go to the adagietto excerpt i think um a lot of times when you present uh kind of a main melody then you develop it and change it when you pres- when you return back to that melody it feels more vulnerable more naked and more, you know, kind of more poignant. And that's what I chose is the return of the main melody um, of the adagietto. I'll just say that I think if you were a brass player, you would be thinking something else, right? (laughs) I'm not so sure. I actually think that um, it's all Mahler is difficult and pushes, pushes the brass players for sure. But I don't, I think that this is something that, it it feels very right yeah. in a way that I think the th- I mean the third symphony which is actually techni- my favorite symphony pushes you so far beyond the bounds of what's right <laughs> whereas the fifth to me feels much more proportionate yeah. I, I would say that a brass player would still appreciate the um, the radiance of the adagietto I mean it, it it will go down and has already gone down as one of the most beautiful expressions in all of the repertoire mm-hmm. I often say things like this is the most beautiful slow movement ever but this is probably the most beautiful slow movement ever and at yeah. least if it's not the most beautiful it's in the top five <laughs> I, I'm, right. not, I'm not trying to set up a turf war here. I, yeah. I was just thinking. Yeah. Actually, I was thinking of uh, when we had uh, Megan Schuster on mm-hmm. your principal horn a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And she was talking about how thrilled she was for those brass mm-hmm. licks. And there's a lot of stuff that happens for the horn throughout. Elaine, uh, you're a brass player. Yes. You side with the brass? <laughs> or <laughs> Well, what's really, uh, I'm in agreement uh, totally with Merwin about this, that Mahler has the most... Um, the biggest brass moments the biggest orchestra moments and then chamber music yeah. and it goes with his personality you know the opening of the symphony ta da ga da it's it's actually it's a sign of his rhythm like he told Bruno Walter exactly there we go okay so this is written not like we play it we have to play a certain rhythm that's a Mahler rhythm in this 
And uh, well, you don't have to play all of it. <laughs> 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 okay, fine. It's can. hard to stop it once it gets going. Yeah. You know? But what's really interesting is that uh, Mahler had this funny way of walking. He had a kind of jinked and he would say click, 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 click. Each like third step, he, he stepped a little bit on the wow. side. And uh, the way to play this is music. And of course, Mahler is somebody who writes to the conductor in his score. Like he has a message for you if you're conducting his music. Because he was a conductor. He's a conductor, but a complete control freak. Uh-huh. He writes complete text of how you have to do each rhythm. And this rhythm is very special. And you'll hear it in the concert all how it's done because I've learned it from uh, it's a long lineage you know yeah. music is an oral tradition right so yeah. Mahler told Bruno Valtaut could do it who went conducted in New York who told Vachiano was a principal trumpet there who told uh, the Vost, who I know and he, he told me what Mahler had told the guy who told the guy <laughs> so wow you're sort of like the great great grandson <laughs> no 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 That's but fascinating but yeah. it, it is fascinating because the rhythms and the way to play Mahler and the the different interpretations of it there's not so many different interpretations you can do even if a lot of people do different things if you play what's in the score is difficult enough there's a lot of stop and go you see the personality you can see how stormy it would be to be involved with that person because it's very good stop, stop and go it's like the loud yeah. soft loud soft and in the music is like that all the different parts have that kind of uh, of music in it and over the years it's uh, like in the 70s 80s it was played kind of as a big wash of sound Mm. But if you play exactly what's in the music, you can see how incredibly uh, the language is not modern because it's romantic, the the harmony and all that. But the way to to write it and the way to to play each of the different parts, you can see why the second Vini school like Schoenberg was like said, oh, Mahler is a a god for us. Right. And he supported those people. He understood where they were going. So it's a gateway to the new music. I want to just uh, briefly talk about what listeners can bring with them to the concert hall and what they can expect. And what's the best way just to experience Mahler live in the concert hall? Does anybody want to jump in and talk about that? If I may. Go ahead. Okay, for this symphony, that every symphony is its own universe, right? This symphony, you really have to, first of all, the first movement, there are two things you have to remember. The ta da and the da 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 and those two things they go together and just let yourself go it's kind of shortish for a Mahler symphony because the first and the second movement are like uh, are like brother and sister they're, they're, yeah. they're in the same family so just think those two go together and then when you pass this this experience you you will be completely tired after that because oh my god emotionally <laughs> it takes so much there's so much drama then we go into just a scherzo which is just fun music a little dance you know and then from the scherzo which and and just take for what it is and there's this big horn obligato you don't really know why it's there just enjoy it and then you uh, <laughs> no no it, it's actually the real repose and and this is uh, at the beginning of that third movement which the drama comes again but then we get to the the fourth movement for me it's a moment of calm and this big symphony and the fourth and the fifth are like another piece hmm. so one two are together Three is a, just a fun piece, <laughs> and four and five, the 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 adagietto that that people know. That's the piece that people are gonna know yeah. the most. So I would say go and listen to that first. Now you have to listen at home a little bit if you can, yeah, yeah or just on your computer. But go and listen to the adagietto, and then there's a little lead in when you hear the horn at the end of that piece. There's going bam. There's an A. Then you're you're in for the last the last uh, the last leg of the the symphony. Okay, well, we're going to continue our discussion now with uh, the 
podcast, extended version of uh, our program today, talking about Gustav Mahler and his Symphony Number no. 5. I have a few more selections here. Uh, Merwin, I, I didn't play yours just because we listened to part of the Adagetto already, but I want to hear uh, one of the choices that you have, Alain. This comes from, we, we've been talking about that trumpet lick that opens the whole yeah. thing, and, and it returns later in the first movement. Yes, it does. Um, the there's a, It's interesting because when you played sax selection, it's basically the same as I yeah. had in the first movement. So, but w- what would be interesting, if possible, is to go to the excerpt from the second movement because okay. it shows the cyclic uh, uh, music of Mahler because it's basically almost the same, but it goes somewhere else. Okay, well, let's listen to that then. I started all these a little bit early so we can get into it. comes back. something about this movement that always makes me think of like a sea shanty or like a uh, yeah. uh, there's I was just swashbuckling about it. It has a little bit of a corn gold feel to <laughs> it. Yeah. All those Errol Flynn movies, right? Yeah. And what about that, that you know, Beethoven fifth quote? That's a good one. All the way. Ta, 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 ta. <laughs> it's a little also like a reference to the crumbling Austro-Hungarian Empire Absolutely. at the time. Oh, that's another podcast. <laughs> that's a, how much time do we have? So this is like a waltz deconstructed. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like yeah. a tango. You could put yeah. in the Ravel. Uh, you could do yeah. yeah. That's later in the year. Make That's a, a whole other <laughs> program around that. Viennese decadence. But you think about it. So, I mean, the, the Beethoven 5 illusion is probably worth talking about just a little bit because in the opening motif, uh, you know, it's it's three shorts and a long. Yeah. So... What is that in Morse code? Do we know? <laughs> <laughs> but you think about, okay, so Trudel, you opened up your first season with Beethoven 5. Uh, you... Now we're opening your second season with Mahler Five. So, um, in a way, it's interesting because these two pieces are kind of inexorably linked, and I think extremely analogous. I think that if you have Beethoven Fifth as kind of a structural framework, you're not going to be all that far off listening to Mahler's Fifth. I think you get that same journey from minor to major, Mm -hmm. and that same sense of like you know, you know, this pushing against a hostile fate. Yeah. And then, you know, kind of moving Tragedy into, to yeah, triumph. Exactly. Basically. So I think yeah. that I think that's something that, you know, um symf- symphony goers who are trying to feel like what would it have been like to hear Mahler's fifth? It's think about being at Beethoven's day and listening to Beethoven's fifth. I think it would be yeah. reasonably similar. Well he cemented that template really, Beethoven mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. uh, of Tragedy to Triumph, which is taken up by so many different composers but taken to a completely n- new level uh, by Mahler. Uh, Effie and Elaine, you've been like trading notes back there while Merwin was talking. <laughs> you, you have something you want to? No, it's that little rhythm we were talking about uh, before. But you know what's really interesting is that in the fifth, there's a how could you say? Do you say courtship? 
like uh, he's trying a courtship, to courtship. Yeah. yeah, yeah, with Alma, and then the sixth symphony comes, and there's the Alma's theme in the in that first moment. But that symphony doesn't go to major; <laughs> it goes to more drama and more and faith with the hammer of uh, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, faith. And it, so it's it's really interesting. And I the big hammer, which folks can find YouTube clips galore if they go online. You know, yeah. I build my own. You did, yeah, from a tree. You built your own ba- hammer back in the from a tree. F- yeah, from a tree, a trunk, uh, the, from from the house back <laughs> from my place. And when when we performed it, you know, the there's cowbells. I went I went around the the different farms where I used to live and and you got cowbells. Cow yeah, I collected cowbells <laughs> because they're not supposed to be musical cowbells. They're supposed to be from the countryside. Anyway, no. so uh, no, well, I we yeah. know Mahler always needs more cowbell. Right? <laughs> 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 oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> bravo! <laughs> no, 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 bravo! <laughs> but you mentioned Alma, and we've talked about Alma. She's sort of been, you know, uh, hovering over this entire discussion. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about Alma Mahler. Effie, you know, you mentioned that she had this relationship with Zemlinsky, and then she met Mahler, and they had the tumultuous relationship, but then she also started an affair while she was married to Mahler. And, you know, looking at it on the surface, uh, she sort of had a pattern in her love life, as it were, um, but she also had such a huge influence on, on many, many different people. Um, she came from a, an artistic family. Her dad was, what, a painter, right, I believe? He was a painter, yeah. yes. Yeah, and, and she moved in those circles throughout her life, lived another 50, however many years after uh, Mahler died. Maybe you can talk a little bit about Alma Mahler and, and give us sort of your perspective on her. Yeah, so the facts are what you said, essentially. She was um, someone who came from the upper crust of the Viennese society, so he had, she had access to all the artists and great salons of the time, and uh, they loved her because she was extremely well-educated for the yeah. time for a female. But also she was a very um, smart, intelligent uh, person and a great musician. As Zach said before, she was a composer. She studied with Zemlinsky, and Zemlinsky was also the teacher of Schoenberg. Yeah. Uh, Zemlinsky was not taking on any student just for fun. So it seemed that, <laughs> you know, there was a lot more there, and of course it, uh, it, it developed into a romantic relationship. Um, yeah. But With uh, Alma, not with Schoenberg. No, right, with, yeah. uh, with Alma, yes. <laughs> yes. Let's, uh, let's specify that. Let's clarify that. Yeah. Uh, and then when uh, she and Mahler met, apparently, according to the latest biographer of Alma's, um, she was still in an affair with Zemlinsky. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, she broke the news to Zemlinsky that actually they were not going to be together anymore, only after Mahler and she got engaged secretly. Wow. She now that's uh, counterpoint for you. Yeah. <laughs> she was hedging her bets there. So um, when they got married immediately within the first year, she got very disillusioned. Mm -hmm. And there are many reasons for that. Some of them are very obvious and we have evidence of that. Um, uh, Gustav wanted her to be the mother, the protector, the person who was going to answer to every one of his demands. The copyist. The copyist (laughs) of his music. Wow, that's like the worst (laughs) of the worst. (laughs) For her to be a composer and then have Oh, yeah. composing husband. And not oh, be allowed yeah, to compose yeah. anymore, to express yeah. her own voice, and live in the same household with somebody who was composing music. But at the same time, she never it never seemed that she was so much 
into his music. Uh, she was always mm. critical of certain parts of his music, including the end of the mm. Fifth Symphony. She didn't like the end with the chorale. Yeah. But imagine if somebody, uh, you know, puts shackles on you and says, you can't Absolutely. do this. He said, there's one genius in this family, and right. it's me. It's like, whoa. Right. And, uh, of course, she's going to go bitter, and she's going to be critical. And also, she was more romantic than him in, the, in her right. music also. Mm -hmm. More in right. the straight tradition uh, of that. He's more revolutionary in the, the kind of writing. But uh, that's a, th th it's, there's a case there, you know, because uh, if you read the, the book like uh, The Art of Being Loved, uh, Alma Mahler, The Art mm -hmm. of Being Loved, you kind of, you, you read, it's a little bit too late almost, so you have kind of, you can pass a judgment on Alma Mahler, but you have to think she's like, what, 18 years younger than him? Mm -hmm. 19, uh, yes. Yeah, and, and uh, she, you know, and, and she gets together with this guy who's iconic. At the same time, he comes from this really dysfunctional family with not much culture. So he has his own complex of inferiority because she's actually comes from, you know, like uh, exactly like you the said. Upper crust, yeah. But, but she has, he has more years and he has a career and she has, oh, it's very complicated. It's... Uh, It's something they both should have never done. <laughs> And that's exactly what Gustav said to her. He said, uh, when she started complaining, you knew that from the beginning. Mm. You knew whom you were marrying. So yeah. you can't complain right now. That, that Because he was overbearing. He was extremely demanding. Uh, and she was someone who wanted constant attention. And that was not Gustav Mahler. He was not willing to give her any attention more than what you know what he might have wanted a big difference between 20 and 40 a huge difference <laughs> and he was always a I nervous don't wreck it either <laughs> <laughs> for different reasons oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he was always a nervous wreck he was also a co uh, constantly he was saying you know you never know when they're going to fire me from the opera because mm -hmm. there was such an, an anti-semitic climate against yeah. him mm -hmm. so he was always in this precarious situation uh, and at the same time he wanted to make music that was the only thing that he wanted to write mm -hmm. music and make music so it was as if I agree with you Alain they never should have gotten together mm -hmm. those were two people who were not simpatico by any s means mm -hmm. I know but sense. would we not have the adagetto if it were not for Alma then and probably a lot of other music yeah. that he openly wrote uh, under her influence. The, the, the little bit overcompensating Eighth Symphony when he was trying to get her back. <laughs> 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 Let's put a thousand people on stage and say, I love you. It's too late. No, it's sad. Because by that time, for her, yeah. it's too late. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, It is too late. No, no, the forest is burned. I mean, there's right. no trees left. It's, uh, and you know, they've said, all been turned it. into hammers at that point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it's actually very sad. Yeah. And of course, then you have the death of their oldest daughter in 1907. Mm. And that truly breaks up their relationship mm. forever. Uh, he tries to get her back again. Uh, he even, there's this famous story where he consults Freud and the two of them also should never have met because <laughs> they were at completely opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of how they felt about life and how they thought about life. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, Alma started having relationships. She was a 20-something-year-old woman, you know, very excited about life, mm -hmm. uh, quite flirtatious, uh, according to the sources. So she had an affair with Walter Gropius. Mm -hmm. 
And Walter Gropius was not just anybody. He was the most famous architect of the time. Mm. Uh, he was the creator of the Bauhaus school. So that was, uh, he was another amazing uh, lover, another amazing partner in yeah. her life. And, and she married him. And after Gustav Mahler mm -hmm. died in 1911, yeah. yeah, she married him. And then Kokoschka. We're forgetting all the great violin concerti that came out of this with the Korngel <laughs> and then the Berg violin concerto yeah. would never have yeah, happened for the, without yeah, can, the daughter. Can we touch a little bit on the violin concerto? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's okay. it's big, uh, and it's not about the violin concerto, it's about the composer. That we there's a lineage, you know, of a European, uh, Western music, European composer. That then you have Mahler. Then of course you have Strauss, which is contemporary uh, of Mahler. Then you you go further, and there's kind of a it stops. Huh? And you were talking about uh, anti-Semit. Uh, mm -hmm. That that's one of the big reasons that everybody moved out, right? Because right. you know they, they they were fearing for their lives. And one of the probably the next Strauss and or the next great composer would have been Korngold. Mm -hmm. You know why he was was Korngold, but you know then you move out. Then what are you going to do? You have to earn a living. You have to yeah, make. You went a, for the, yeah. Well, you now you migrate and uh, and you have to find uh, a, a mm -hmm. way to make your art. And uh, he found it in the cinema. And he came to America, and he's an amazing composer. Mm -hmm. But imagine if you go back and you just tell him <coughs> you can just write uh, concert music, then we would have had another repertoire. Because the, the Violin Concerto is as good as any major works of any composer, you know, from uh, the time before that. But it's really interesting to see all you're talking about. Maybe we wouldn't have had that music if uh, Mahler uh, wouldn't have gotten with uh, Alma Schindler. And uh, yes, but you know, uh, he, the, the, the events in life, events in history, they, they, they carve the music that we play. They carve, they carve the music that, uh, that is there. I mean, and very often they're very, very bad events, but the human as human beings, uh, they want to survive. Yeah. And it's just a way to survive. And it's uh, for them, Mal, um, Gustav Mahler and Anna, it's a way to survive each on their, on their side for, for a little while. For him to try to get her back, for other composers to try to survive after a war. That there's all this, this backdrop. And we hear music, but there's always something that's, that's really more um, human behind it. Yeah. So what else would not have existed if Alma Mahler was not... <laughs> 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 Not here. We do like alternate history, right? There goes the Berg concerto. There goes the Corn Gold concerto. Although you, I you think know. that needs to be a drunk history program. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I'll say so. She uh, she emigrated to the states in the '40s. She became a U.S. citizen, and uh, she lived in New York. So you think about what was happening in the late 50s and 60s with Bernstein leading this kind of Mahler rediscovery. Yeah. She was attendant at many of those rehearsals with the New York Philharmonic. Yeah. So, you know, she even influenced the rebirth with air quotes of Mahler's music um, later in her life. Well, and I mean, I guess it's fairly safe to say that without Alma, much of Gustav's work would not have been propagated in the way that it, that it was with her as an inspiration. So that, you know, like like a house of cards, then it sort of falls down. Mm. You know, Bernstein without Mahler, all these other conductors mm. and musicians without the influence of Gustav Mahler. Mm. So she's sort of the linchpin of musical history in regards to Gustav Mahler and, and all the, you know, reverberations 
of his art. You think about the sense of the muse, though. This is what originally brought Effie into the studio last season, talking about Schumann and Brahms um, and Clara Schumann. Yeah, um, except that one had that a one more, is a, a little more positive a little more saucy, than this one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but here's we might be over dramatic in this, but I mean, here's a, a singular woman who affected uh, music history and and perhaps architect architectural history and literary history as well. Yeah, because we didn't mention that actually when she divorced Walter Gropius, she got together with Franz Werfel, one great of the, the great literary figures yeah. of the time, and so it was with him that he, that she emigrated to the United mm-hmm. States. So the Alma scorecard, two uh, composers and, and one architect and one poet, was there anybody after that? Well, there were some flirtatious <laughs> connections now, in between. Now we're getting to the good part of the podcast. It's, Kokoschka it's, is very dirty yeah. for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, but... Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> speaking of... Um, Sorry, I can't stop laughing uh, about that. Sorry, uh, but, uh, okay. If I could just say that, I mean, uh, the Verifol, that probably was her most successful relationship. I mean, they were married for 15 or 20 years, and I think she had fathered or he had fathered her, a child that she had when she was still married to Gropius right there's something in that uh, sounds familiar yeah you mean uh Verifol. okay I'm not sure about that yeah, yeah. I mean this it, it's scandal this is like you know you, you TMZ need like a, a bunch of yarn and push pins <laughs> and, a, and a whiteboard to figure all this out right to you mean after Manon Gropius after she died uh Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll check later. your we'll biography. <laughs> this, this is what Wikipedia is for. <laughs> That's right. Elaine, you want to... Yeah, just to come back to the topic of music. Uh, <laughs> there's a, there's a <laughs> <laughs> That's no fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, now music and history is that one of the reasons that there was a rebirth of Mahler, or, or birth of Mahler actually, is music later on, is that the anti-Semite and the, the Nazi were so... They wanted to get rid of anything that had to do with anything that's Jewish, anything that's Mahler also, that uh, Alma was able to buy all the rights to all the music of, of her husband for about the price of a, a grocery. Hmm. To once at the grocery, like uh, was, I think, uh, two hundred fifty billion. But you know, they, the the money kept going up <laughs> before mm. the. That's the a lot crash. of groceries. No, really. I, no, 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 but like you know, seriously, <laughs> like uh, like two loaves of bread or something like that for the entire catalog in the twenties. Yeah, and uh, and that that gave her liberty to to have his music performed, and at that time, uh, w- when we think of a muse, you know, somebody who's a muse, yeah, there's it's kind of uh, the connotation is kind of negative sometimes when we think of it. But if you go back to to that time, it's not exactly what we think. It's somebody exactly like Alma that has great taste, that has that's actually a little bit above that you want to impress the uh, 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 not only you know because you you want her to like you but also because you know how much knowledge there is there and how much uh, experience uh, within the arts muse is actually my favorite word in the english <laughs> language and i think it's one of the things that's so so funny when you think about that role is it's often you know thought of as a very passive role like you know oh you you inspire but you basically you know the composer's doing the work but i think that um Ellen's talking about there's a, a real practicality to it that to to be an inspiration it's not just act it's, an, it's not just a passive verb it's an active verb mm. and i think yeah. that 
there's exactly yeah musing I, yeah and i think you know the combination of like that element and then the ruminative feel of the word i just love that word so much yeah the opposite of amuse right? <laughs> well sometimes this podcast combines both <laughs> or bemuse <laughs> the best of three worlds um we're, we're going to wrap it up momentarily but you, you want to weigh in with anything else i, I just want to add that my, Alma was an incredible woman, but she was also a piece of work. Yeah. And if you read her latest biography, um, which is actually called The Benevolent Muse, huh? y- you find out some tidbits about her life that you're not going to like so much. Mm-hmm. She also expressed a lot of anti-Semitism mm-hmm. in her life. Really? And she did many things that we would say are unsavory or in bad taste now. And... Uh, I'm not uh, going to go into more yeah. details. Th- I mean, there are th- that's a story that has repeated itself several times in the history of classical music, and certainly with m- many composers that a lot of people know and love, and, and you know, they also have their dark side. Right. And right. the question is, do we take it all, you know, or do we uh, reject it? So. And in her case, we still have her music too. Yeah. And I always encourage my students go and find her leader and perform her leader. Mm. She was a very good composer. I want to give the last word to Gustav Mahler and just finish out with an excerpt from the finale, actually taking it all the way to the end. But I do want to mention, uh, for those of you listening to the podcast version of our uh, episode today, the entire episode inspired by the opening of the 76th anniversary season of the Toledo Symphony Orchestra. That concert is happening this weekend Friday and Saturday at 8 p.m. at the Toledo Museum of Art Peristyle, Elaine Trudell at the podium, violinist Lisa Fetchman. We're going to hear Trudell's own piece, Rhea, a big fanfare opening up the uh, concert in the season. That'll be followed by the violin concerto of Erich Wolfgang Korngold, and then finally Gustav Mahler's Symphony Number no. 5, which we've been talking all about today. You can get more information at ToledoSymphony.com or 419-246-8000. This program is a production of WGTE Public Media and is generously underwritten by the Rita Barber Kern Foundation in collaboration with our sponsor, the Toledo Symphony. You can download episodes of our program as a podcast by going to our website at wgte.org lab. You can also subscribe to us through your podcast app of choice, including both Apple and Google Podcasts. And don't forget, you can check out all the upcoming events at the Symphony in their new season. Visit their website at ToledoSymphony.com and their various social media outlets on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. My thanks to Zach Fasser, Elaine Trudell, Merwin Sue, and our special guest, Effie Papanicolaou. I'm Brad Cresswell. You're listening to Toledo Symphony Lab from FM91. And we'll turn it over now to the finale of Mahler's Symphony Number no. 5. Anybody want to talk about it a little bit, or we just want to let it play out? I'll just say, given all of the agony and um, anguish that we've been talking about this symphony ends with one of the sunniest finales so take it away